Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Absolutely. Um, so what are we trying next? I know the others are 2016, which you said is one of your favorite vintages um, of late. Um, so the second wine is? Um, the second wine is, um, it's, it's also a blend, uh, mm-hmm. sort of hillside Cabernet blend. Uh, this is Onda. Onda. And Onda's wine we started making in 2007. Um, and it's sort of like, its backbone is at our Crystal Springs Vineyard, which sits um, above the Silverado Trail, um, sort of right between St. Helena and Calistoga mm-hmm. on the Eastern Hills. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is, it really is kind of um, a little bit, you know, comparing it to, to Vaso, the site has a little bit sort of what I would call sort of a little bit warmer expression of Cabernet, mm-hmm. um, a little broader, broader on the mouth, um, and from you know the backbone being from Crystal Springs, having a little bit more heat mm-hmm. um, because the the vineyard is about thirty degrees um, in steepness on the side of a hill facing sort of southwest, mm-hmm. um, so the vines really get a lot of you know intense sunshine. Um, throughout the growing season, and I think it really gets captured in the wine. Wow, I can't wait to try it. I was noting a darker color as well. Um, completely different mouthfeel, you know, tanning quality, but my God, is that a powerhouse? So, a little bit more structured wine. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we're looking at a vintage difference as well. The 2015s is um, a really interesting vintage coming back to the Vaso. Um, one thing that I found really interesting about 2015 is if you look at the number of seeds you find in, in grape berries, mm. um, there was a lot fewer seeds in 2015, which means you're going to have less seed tannin that's going to make it into the wine, which to me kind of creates a backbone off of which the other tannins in the wine can sort of you know, hang off of. It's sort of like the framing of your house. Yes. Um, and so the 2015s really have a silkiness to them mm-hmm. because of that decrease in the seed tannin um, in the wines. Wow. Um, the finish. I'm still tasting it. It's very distracting. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally listening, but it's like this wine it's has really, such presence <clears throat> and such mouthfeel. I kind of feel like wine tasting um, on a podcast is like kind of cruel to the listener. <laughs> yes, it is. Thank you for saying it because I, and I apologize profusely. I feel quite um, self-indulgent right now yeah. because I am tasting something quite special and you guys are just hearing about it. I have purchased quite a few wines from listening to podcasts on wine. <laughs> Good. See, that's the key Where it's to like, you guys. <laughs> I hear about like, some property or, you know, some winemaker talking about their wines. I'm like, wow, I really got to try that. Like, you know, and then go out and like, then I spend another 15 minutes online trying to, <laughs> trying to find the wine. I like that. It's actionable that way. And new wines, since we're on the subject, are available for purchase on the website or is there, I understand that you have um, a mailing list. Um, yeah, so you can um, call the winery and we can, um, with, with Vaso, it's available, available for sale. Okay. Um, and then with, um, with Onda and Donna, people should just call the winery. Got it. Um, um, 
while we were um, walking around the facility, you said something that really caught my attention, which is the overarching philosophy for your wines. World class, not necessarily Napa context exclusively, clearly it's grown here. But in terms of the world stage, this wines are meant to be contenders. Is that accurate? I would say that that's the, the philosophical underpinnings of what the the goal of the winery is. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a real, you know, starting with Mr. Lee, that there's, that that is not, you know, like I was saying before, that's a, that's a long-term vision. Yes. And that's the sort of the goal of what we're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I'm going to leave it to others whether we've like actually achieved that or not. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a little bit difficult sometimes to have that perspective. Mm -hmm. um, when you get so immersed in, you know, the production of, you know, of, of, of wines, sometimes while you can taste wines from all over the world, sometimes you're, you become a little bit myopic in terms of like the, the hyper focus on different yeah. sites. Um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of the overarching goal is to, to try to make wines that that you know, hopefully in 50 years will be looked back upon in the same way that I looked upon that 1929, you know, Lafitte, that it's like, wow, it's going to open somebody's eyes yes. and be something that's a really special um, experience. Well, if you're to believe scoring system and critics, you can't get enough of your wine. It's so well reviewed. Um, uniformly, you get fantastic scores. Um, what I'm tasting here today bespeaks um, exactly what you described. It's a wine I want to keep going back to. It's something that is very intellectually stimulating as well as palatable. It has that freshness, which almost is counterintuitive when you think in the context of the wine that's big and voluminous and texturally sound and has a tannin value and acidic value. So you've achieved something that's quite um, remarkable. Um, you mentioned earlier that about the ballerina reference of something that's mm -hmm. so powerful and so well-trained and so poised, but yet so elegant and so easy on the eyes, it makes it look effortless. I think that actually describes your wines quite well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's, there's so many analogies that you can, you can use to describe wines and mm -hmm. it's always, it's interesting how, how many different like analogies people use to try to, how do we sort of try to describe what we're tasting because we're not, we're very visual creatures. Yep. Um, and how do we translate what we're perceiving through sort of like, you know, the senses of, you know, it's not really taste, but you know, taste and smell, mm -hmm. um, you know, more so the smell and how do we translate that into a way that we can communicate with someone else? Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, that I, I use that reference because I think it, it captures in a way that I think a broader audience can really understand of like what we're trying, you know, what the, the goal is or the, the, the hope to achieve. Is it a wine that will have something similar to this ballerina reference of, you know, not only power, but the amazing precision and poise. Um, I, th I think it's, it's just like, to me, to me, it sort of speaks to me when I think of, you know, analogies and how can I, how can I create an analogy of what I'm trying to do in the wine 
to something that is maybe a little bit easier for other people to understand. You know, the language of wine always fascinated me. There's, of course, the lingo that's used by the media and the nerds and such like that, and there's quite a bit of repetition there. And then there's the consumer that um, is a bit hesitant. There's a lot of trepidation of saying the wrong thing. I'm sure you've heard people say, well, I don't know if I'm describing it right. And I think it's important to describe it in your own words and what it means to you. And that in and out of itself brings so much value to the experience. I think the other thing that I really try to impress on people is it's not that you don't have the right words, it's that you haven't, you're still having that experience and whether you can articulate like a wine critic and wax poetic about the wine <laughs> really has no relevance on whether you enjoy the wine or not. Right. Your inability to have trained to describe it just comes down to have you tasted wine and really tried to assign vocabulary to each individual sensation you have in your mouth? Well, that's a specific skill that someone has really worked to hone, sure. but it doesn't have any impact on whether you can enjoy the wine or not. And so you're, you know, I, I try to let people know that like, it's not your inability to describe the wine that changes your enjoyment of the wine. It just means that it makes it harder for you to have a, a conversation around the wine because you can't articulate yourself. I think that's so important. I just want to kind of pause on this for a moment and flesh it out. I th sometimes think of it as a Jedi power moment when you literally close your eyes and, and let yourself feel that power, um, even without training, right? So relating to wine to me is a very personalized exercise and it's yours and yours alone. There's a greater context, you know, obviously the social fabric and where you are and all sorts of bits and pieces that contribute to the experience. But at the end of the day, it's you and the wine and how it lands on you. And what you're, what you're essentially saying is that don't be afraid to experience it and however you express it or not, it's still a sound, complete moment that you get to enjoy. So do that instead of worrying what is that you're going to say or how you're going to sound, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, when I probably experienced one of the best wines I've ever tasted in my life, I didn't, I couldn't describe what I was feeling, what, you know, how the wine tasted. Mm -hmm. I couldn't articulate any of that. Yeah. I just had an emotional experience by tasting it. And, you know, it's like emotional, but also just a pleasurable experience of like, I just put something in my mouth that tastes really good. And so like, I think if people distill it back to something a little bit more basic, mm -hmm. maybe that piques their interest and they want to learn more. They want to build their skills to be able to have an intellectual conversation around, mm -hmm. you know, the differences between, you know, different properties in Burgundy or different single vineyards in Napa. Like, yeah, you, anyone can learn to do that. It's just a matter of whether that's something that they want to spend their free time doing. Mm -hmm. Um, or in some cases, a professional time doing. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that every single person can't have that same pleasurable experience, even if they can't engage in that next level of... Um, Absolutely. And it's a bit of a time travel too, isn't it? Because you get to experience something that took several years to come together. And so many hands have touched it from the vineyard workers to you, to the cellar hands. And, you know, finally it, it comes to your table or the sommelier that also tasted it prior to you. So there's a pretty long chain 
of participants. And then you get to not just evaluate and taste it, but you get to truly experience what that means. Um, and I think that in that of itself is such an important part. I think the consumer, not from the judging day, judgment day point of view, but from really appreciating what it took to bring it to the table. And when you taste internationally, then you get to travel to that region mentally because it's unique unto itself. Um, so wine number three, um, 2016. Um, so this is 2016. Um, this is from our Hershey Vineyard. So yes. this is uh, one of the Donna single vineyard wines. Mm -hmm. um, this is one of the first three wines that the winery produced, sort mm -hmm. of the, um, of the, the wines that we're producing. The, this is the Hershey Vineyard. We also have the Lotus Vineyard and the Helms Vineyard, mm -hmm. which were sort of the, the trifecta of, of, of wines that the winery is sort of founded around. Mm -hmm. um, so the Hershey Vineyards are our highest site up on Howe Mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and the 2016, um, I don't know, I'm really excited, excited about this wine. I, it's one of, to me, one of the wines that I guess I get sort of most excited about creating because there's the most challenges in terms of the complexity of the vineyard. Um, and so the blending to me is sort of the most I guess, challenging mm -hmm. um, of the three single vineyard wines. Wow. Um, the nose is very different. I mean, they're all different, clearly, different origin, but also just in terms of the quality, it's, it's more reserved. Um, and of course, mountain fruit would suggest that there's more energy and tightness, um, theoretically speaking. And now that I've tasted, I can validate. There's definitely that tension that you feel. And there's also one of the things I think is a real sort of signature of the site is there's a minerality that really underlies mm -hmm. um, underlies the wine, um, and get it both in the it's which, what i find very fascinating is that there's this like minerality or whetstone character mm -hmm. that comes out not only in the cabernet but also in the sauvignon blanc we make from the same site oh my goodness um, um so really you know talking about a sense of place and a sense of like is there sort of a signature characteristic of of the vineyard yeah it's interesting to be able to see that within two very different grape varietals very no. interesting. And you've highlighted minerality, which I think also sometimes can be confusing to the consumer. What does it mean to you? Um, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a character. I think the easiest way sometimes to describe it is it's almost more of a smell than it is really a taste. So mm -hmm. if you think about the fact you can only, you really only have five tastes and everything mm -hmm. else is smell. Um, so it's really, to me, it, it, to me, it's reminiscent of rain um, in the mountains. And so I specifically, coming from California, I spent a lot of times in the Sierra where it's mostly granite. Oh. Um, and so to me, it's very reminiscent of sort of summer rain on warm granite in the Sierras. What a poetic description. Um, and so, but I think you can, get, you can get similar notes like, you know, rain on concrete, rain on, you know, different types of rocks. You, there's a certain kind of like aromatic that you get. Huh. And to me, it really hits on the very late finish, which is where you're getting sort of that retronasal, you know, after you swallow the wine, there's kind of that little kick. 
Yes. That's where, to me, it really comes from. That's fantastic. And that, that's sort of how I would describe it. What, what is that flavor? Yes. Thank you. So obviously you work with blends as well as individuals standalone. And um, we had a discussion about, you know, various sites vis-a-vis um, -vis the blends and what is really the value proposition for somebody who, you know, maybe is not as well versed in, as, in what that really means. So how would you describe and what do you think are the most salient points of that? Um, sorry, of the, of the different sort of the different Just, approaches yeah, to the blending? different approaches to like what, what motivates and constitutes the blend versus, you know, the single origin wine, single varietal, a single site. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I think sometimes people think single, single origin or single site wines mean mm -hmm. that there's no blending involved. Ah. Um, <laughs> There's still blending, Got um, it. <laughs> you know, even if you're taking, taking one lot of grapes that goes into one tank, it goes into multiple barrels and mm -hmm. all those barrels are going to have their own personality and you're potentially going to be blending, putting a wine together from those barrels. Um, for our single vineyard wines, you were usually working with several different lots that are mm -hmm. then getting blended together, but they're all coming off of, you know, one particular site. And so it's a blending within within a vineyard block or within a vineyard mm -hmm. um, versus blending across vineyards and across varietals. Hmm. Um, and so blending, um, you know, just talking about Onda as an example, the second mm -hmm. wine that we tasted, well, it sort of has its heart at Crystal Springs mm -hmm. and that little bit warmer, broader, more expansive feel to the tannins mm -hmm. versus Vasa, which is a little bit creamier, but a little bit more central and linear, mm -hmm. having a little bit more sort of a little bit more high altitude feel to it, a little bit more um, of a savory um, component to the wine. Definitely, there's that lift that you're describing. Um, really working to try to balance some of that, that power with a finesse. So being able to blend in a little bit of Merlot or um, Cab Franc. <clears throat> Um, as well as maybe a little bit of Rutherford fruit to add maybe a little bit more of a floral aromatic to make the, the, the aromatics a little bit more refined or elegant. And how those different, the different places can be complementary to each other in kind of capturing sort of the, the vintage and all of our estate versus a very hyper-specific place that has a very specific personality that I'm trying to capture. And so it's, it's sort of a, a summation of, of the family versus mm -hmm. of one individual. So thinking about, the, thinking about the individual vineyards is almost as individual people, mm -hmm. but then how do they work together kind of as a team um, in the blended wines? How much of that really art form is instinct and how much of it is informed by other factors, like when you're actually in the thick of blending? I say a lot of it is just sort of, you know, this comes down to the sort of more intuitive piece, right? <laughs> so like you taste the wine, you go like, yeah, that feels like Hershey or nah, it just yeah. doesn't, it doesn't quite feel like Hershey. And, and so like, there's a lot of that's intuitive. Yeah. 
Do you continue tweaking it or do you just know when you got it right and you leave it alone? No, my sort of analytical background can't leave it alone. <laughs> so you probably stop. Often, often, oftentimes <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's in the first blending session that, yeah. that I'll come up with what's the final wine, but like there'll be 20 iterations. But mm -hmm. that wine will usually be, you know, in all those iterations, we'll keep coming back to it. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes it's one of those first wines that, that is the final wine, but not always. So like mm -hmm. I find value in the sort of that iterative process. And it's also learning and fun. I mean, that's what's, I mean, one of the funnest things about winemaking is like putting blends together. It and is. just like seeing how the different components work together because it's a non-linear or additive process. I'm sure, seeing yeah. all your hard work came together and being able to play with different lots and such like that. So in terms of um, the future, clearly there's a long-term vision, um, like you said, generational, um, which is, you know, I applaud it because I think it's a very healthy philosophy. People talk about sustainability and such like that, but what is the underlying um, theme of all of that what is the reason it's really you want to create something that um can provide something of substance and value to in the future just like that 29 lafitte right so if you can make sure. the wine that somebody could open and in 60 or 70 year time will put a smile on their face and potentially change their career path and maybe their entire life that's a pretty exciting proposition but incrementally, as you if I only forward. do that once <laughs> in my entire career, and I will be won't be here to see it, but that I would say that's a success. Wow! So you just told me what your definition of success is. It sounds like, which is something I was going to ask you. Um, incrementally, as you move forward, um, what are some of the goalposts as the brand evolves and develops? Um, well, I think one of the one of the things is to really make make sure that as the brand develops for especially for Vaso is to make sure that we're that the wine retains its personality and mm. kind of its character um, and that it it sort of lives up to the philosophical underpinnings that kind of gave it birth Mm. And I think that's something that sometimes is very difficult to, that's a difficult path uh, sometimes mm -hmm. because there's, there's sometimes a desire if you're, you know, trying to, you know, produce a little bit more of the wine um, to sort of lose that, that focus, that laser focus mm -hmm. on making sure that philosophically it's still what you set out to do. And that's not to say that there's not going to be, that there's no room for, for change and improvement. Yeah. Because as we've talked about, like, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's a constant ability. You should always be looking at trying to improve things. Mm -hmm. And there's always a room for doing slightly better than you did before. Um, but I think one of, the, one of the things that I always get concerned about is, do you lose sight of the you know, the forest when you're looking at the trees kind of a, a thing. You get yeah. bogged down in the details of like, how am I going to do, do these things without keeping that bigger vision, vision in mind? Yeah, no, I, I really love what I'm hearing. There's clearly that evolutionary progression, but it's rooted in the fundamentals, the integrity um, that really underlines 
and underscores everything that I've experienced here today. I'm very excited and I look forward to tasting uh, the vintages and having more conversations with you. Thank you very much for all the insight. It is immensely impressive, but there's a lot of heart, a lot of intent, um, which is something that to me is perhaps the most important part of our industry is the human terroir and you've embraced it fully and it shows up in a glass. So I urge you guys to try the wines. I think you will find your own story in them. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.